place it comfortably. Good morning, everyone. Third day of session, and um, we're all settling in, deepening samadhi. Um, a few words about it to begin with, just from my own experience. There's um, problem like you, first, first day, second day, kind of settling in, monkey mind takes over, but you keep coming back, takes over, keep coming back. Um, and not everyone's experience is the same, but, but most people have settled by, by the third day in a much more settled state where there's much more of a, a flow to your conscious experience. And um, that was my experience this morning when we did the first hour of sitting. I could tell I was, I was in the zone. I was just kind of... Consciousness was just flowing without too much effort to keep it there. Mm-hmm. And what it reminds me of is, is the experience we have when we go to have a shower in the morning and you, you turn on the, the tap, like the hot water tap, and, um, and it spurts and splutters at first, you know, it's all the air bubbles are clearing in the pipe and it makes funny noises. And that's kind of like the first two days of session, you know, like you turn on the tap and there's water coming out but it splashes and, you know, and it spurts and so on. And then, and then the, you get a steady stream of cold water, right? But then, and, and that's a bit unpleasant being under the cold water, but it's streaming out in a flow. And then what happens is that it just very, very, very gradually transforms into warm water, right? And you're sort of bathed in, in, in warm water. Um, so there's a kind of a, not just a flow, but a sense of warmth to the experience as well. And, and then sometimes you feel like you could just stay there forever, but you have to get out and go to work or make dinner. You've got to get up and do your job or do kinhin or whatever. Um, but that, there's that sense of, uh, of warmth and flow to experience starts to develop over time. And that's not necessarily everyone's experience, but it, in general terms, it's, it's a, it describing the journey that happens with continuous Zen practice eventually that, that warm flow starts to become more of what your experience of life is. But there is absorption. What I'm talking about is samadhi power absorption. is one aspect of Zen practice. And um, the other aspect of it is insight and they're connected. So the more that you can just become absorbed in the in the flow of your experience, the oneness of your experience. It sets it up for inside experiences to occur where there's a, a glimpse into, um, I don't, don't want to use fancy Buddhist or Zen words for it, I want to just use plain English. But there's, there's an opening up into suchness. You know, suchness is just the way things are before we project all of our concepts onto it. So the conceptual mind just stops for a moment and we just see things clearly as they really are without any sense of separateness from our experience because life out there and me in here, we, we get to see it just concepts as well. Mm-hmm. But what I want to emphasise at the beginning of this talk is something that's not necessarily spoken about so overtly about doing Zen practice is it takes courage to do this. 
you know, um, this kind of practice, particularly doing a session, is not for the faint-hearted. And the reason why it takes courage is basically because at some level or another, our, our lives are driven by fear, right? So you do something like session um, and you just turn up to your moment, moment by moment experience. It takes courage to do that. I remember the, um, the Australian um, novelist Patrick White said something once in, one, in his autobiography that um, courage is fear running in the right direction. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's like when we come to Zen practice, we, we're kind of consciously or unconsciously recognising that fear is driving our behaviour in various ways in our life. And instead of avoiding it, running away from it, trying to cover it up through entertainment and so on, it's like we've got to that point where we're willing to, to face into the fear right? and, and work with it. And then something transforms. And um, one, one of the rewarding things of, of working as a therapist is that you, you, if you work with people long enough and they stay with you enough, you see various fears and anxieties, social fears, existential fears, personal fears, dissolving, you know, and that's, that's part of the growth in therapy. But it's also what you see, it's even like as a, what's so fulfilling um, in the work of being a, a Zen teacher is that you see through years and years of meditation daily meditation, weekly, doing session over and over again. You see that when people commit to the process, you see their fear going down, like even more so perhaps than what therapy can give you. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just com commitment to the process. But that willingness to turn up and have the courage to be with fear over and over again in meditation and in all the activities we do in a session, gradually, 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 it diminishes. Um, and I, I see that in many, many people here, you know, um, coming to session over many years. So it is a journey of being present to fear in all its different forms. And you do it over and over again, the fear diminishes and then your life just naturally becomes freer and more fulfilling. And sometimes we didn't even realise how much fear was restricting our life until it dissolves. And you look back and you go, oh, well, I'm not shy anymore. Or I'm, not, I'm not scared of death anymore. Right? I can really give myself over to life rather than holding back. Um, and that is, that is the process of, of doing this. Otherwise, there wouldn't be much point in doing it. <laughs> and um, of course you could always <clears throat> you could always walk away from, you know, decide not to do session or walk away from Zen practice and 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 not face the fear. That's the choice everyone has. And personally I've been doing this for so long that the coming to session doesn't have any like noticeable fear to it. It's no more fearful than driving the car, really. But I've got to remember, I've got to take my mind back to when I first started doing 
uh, Zen and in Japan and first doing session, but the first few sessions I did were scary. You know, and, and, we, and the idea of walking into that dark zendo, that empty dark zendo that was so simple yet so empty, um, I had to do it, but it filled me with dread at the same time. And I could have walked away from it, but it's like, no, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to face into this rather than face away from it. And a similar experience I had um, in my life, not in Zen practice, but in, in sailing, about, must be about 10 or 15 years ago now, um, I went sailing on the Endeavour, the tall ship Endeavour, to Tasmania. And uh, I had a fear of heights. And you're expected as crew members to climb the mast, a 100-foot mast, and go out on a yard arm and to, and to set the sails and bring the sails in. Now, you didn't have to, but, um, but it was kind of an expectation that everyone participated in it. And um, so I was caught in that same kind of bind, like in first doing a Zen session, you know, like a dread of going into that dojo, but I couldn't walk away from it at the same time. So there's a sense of stuckness. So I remember on the boat, I was on the, on the deck looking up there, and, and going, part of me thinking, well, I, I think of my, my self-image as someone who is a, a, a person who has courage or wants to have courage. But on the other hand, the fear of going up there was overwhelming. So I was caught in this stuckness, like I wanted to go up, but I couldn't go up. Right? So what, what do you do? Then eventually, after a day or two, I just decided to go for it. You know, it's like, don't think about it, just do it. So I ran up the ran up the rat lines, literally like a, a rat a rat running up a pipe. <laughs> Just do it, boom! And it was in the evening, and it was out on the the, the, the top part of the mast, up on the yard arm, and I was scared. But it's like you just do it, and then you do it once, and then you start to overcome the fear. You do it twice; it's different. The second trip I did on on the the endeavour, after getting a few. Um, basic lessons from a good friend of mine in rock climbing and how to climb, um, I actually enjoyed the next experience and I enjoyed being up there or high up and looking over the ocean. So that's kind of like a, a, a metaphor for Zen practice as well as this fear of, um, of letting go. And, and the more you let go, you realise it's not that fearful and you enjoy that experience of letting go. Now, what can give us a bit of direction here in terms of um, fear and insight and courage is if we look at the words of the Heart Sutra. Um, the Heart Sutra is, is like the key, the main, the main Buddhist sutra connected with Zen because it's about the cultivation of wisdom and the cutting off of concepts or, or seeing into the emptiness of concepts. And it starts off from the depths of Prashna wisdom, the Bodhisattva of compassion soar into the emptiness of every construct and so pass beyond all suffering. Now it looks like from those opening words that this is just some kind of um, 
conceptual cutting off you to do. It's just to do with thinking, you know, what we would call in psychology cognition. It's just a, a matter of cutting off the thinking and then you have this inside experience. Um, but it's more to it than that, as we'll look at, because it also involves emotion. But on the cutting off of language and concepts, um, some of you may or may not be familiar with a book I've mentioned some time ago called um, My Stroke of Insight by Jill Bolte-Taylor. Jill Bolte-Taylor is, was, a neuroanatomist, of all things, who had a massive stroke when she was a, in her, I think, 30s, 40s, and it, and it wiped out the, the left side of her brain, you know, where the language centres are mainly on the left side of the brain. And her experience was she went into this blissful silence. So it's like, like the language centres, the concepts were cut off or destroyed through the stroke and her right hemisphere then predominated and there was just this peace and silence that was blissful for her, that just continued on and on and on. And she knew there was something wrong, you know, and her survival instinct kicked in and she got emergency help and she eventually made a full, full recovery, you know, and got her language back again. Um, but it, again, it demonstrated this difference of the, the right, and hemisphere, right hemisphere and left hemisphere explanation we have of, of our life. And she actually features in, um, in the Gilchrist documentary called The Divided Brain. He went to her place in the US. And she's quite, she's a, quite a flamboyant woman. And her, her house has um, been made over into this kind of art gallery that's got art pieces of the brain. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but even, even here, you know, even, even though we can understand now through the work of um, neuroscientists, how the right hemisphere works and how the left hemisphere works, and how primary the right hemisphere is in our practice doing Zen. And we can see more clearly that Zen practice, and particularly Koan study, is a way of getting us out of left hemisphere entrapment where we're caught in concepts. But a warning, all of that is an explanation. It's a neurological explanation, it's useful, it's a scientific explanation, but it's not the lived experience. The explanation is not going to get you anywhere. Buddhist explanations are not going to get you anywhere. Philosophical explanations are not going to get you there because they're all concepts. When we see into the emptiness of every construct, it is a embodied here and now experience of suchness. Don't confuse it with explanations, because mm -hmm. they're still all conceptual. Don't confuse it with Zen words or Buddhist words. They're all concepts. Nirvana, Samsara, Kensho, Satori, they're all concepts. Wipe them away, all of them. Mm -hmm. But if we go further down, into the Heart Sutra, it's not just talking about const constructs, <coughs> concepts, and seeing into them. 
It also says the Bodhisattva who dwells in this perfect wisdom, attaining nothing, is not entrapped by delusive fantasies, and where there are no such obstacles, where there are no such obstacles, there is no fear. Mm-hmm. So the Heart Sutra is not just talking about the cutting off of concepts, it's actually talking about emotion. Fear is an emotion. Because what's behind this clinging to concepts is fear. Fear fear is our most basic human emotion. And it has a function, it's there to help us to survive. Without it we wouldn't survive. But in nearly all human beings, it's, it's an excessive fear of something. And it's all tangled up in our sense of identity, our sense of separateness. And if we have a sense of separateness, then to use the words I used from a previous Dharma talk this session, we get caught up in a, a self, self-protection, self-promotion racket that runs our life. But fear is at the basis of it. Mm-hmm. And so fear leads us, is the, is the emotional aspect that leads us to clinging to certain ideas and concepts and, and having an aversion to others. Right. So if you use an example of it um, in another Buddhist teaching, which is called the Eight Worldly Winds, there's these four pairs of opposites. So we have praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and shame, success and failure. And all human beings, to one degree or another, their fear is driving them towards grasping for praise, grasping for pleasure, grasping for validation or fame, grasping for success, whatever that means for you. And we have a fear of their opposites. We have a fear of being blamed. We have a fear of pain. We have a fear of shame. We have a fear of failure. So there's emotion driving our, our experience as a human being all the time. Right? And, then, and then if we come to Zen practice, you know, we, want to, we then want to succeed at that as well. You know, we, want to, we want to cling to being in a peaceful state of mind or reaching nirvana or having a great insight, and we fear failing at it. You know? So we bring all of that. That's just normal. That's just human nature. That's what we bring to our practice. Just need to acknowledge it. That's all. Mm-hmm. And then we work with it. And the more we work with it, we more, the more it drops away. And when you look at Kawan's study in particular, um, uh, as, a, as a unique aspect of, of Dharma practice in Zen practice, all of those Kawans are, are, are there to help us break out of the entrapment of being of being clinging to a conceptual world, mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't look as though they have application to everyday life. But if you study them enough, you you see that they do. And some examples from on the gateless barrier, the Mumon Khan, to give you some examples of it. Um, So, for example, there's a case called um, Joshua and the Hermits, and the two Hermits. 
Chacho went to a hermit's cottage and asked, anybody in, anybody in? It's a challenging question. First move in the chess game. Anybody in, anybody in? The hermit lifted up his fist and Jacho said, the water's too shallow for a big ship like me to anchor here. So it was, in a, you know, it was a put down, a then put down. Oh, what a weak response. <laughs> no insight whatsoever. Again, he went to a hermit's cottage and it could, it, the, the wording of it could be it's the same, it's the same hermit. He went to the hermit's cottage and asked, anybody in, anybody in? This hermit too lifted up his fist. Jarjo said, freely you give, freely you take away, freely you kill, freely you give life. And he made a full bow. He praised the monk. So the first monk raised his fist and he chastises him. The second monk raises his fist and he praises him. This is all about praise and blame. You know, if you see into this, this koan and you embody this koan, it has relevance for the way that you live your life around those concepts of praise and blame. Or another one uh, is the, uh, the koan, um, Think Neither Good or Evil, where, the, um, where Huey Nen is, is given, this peasant boy is given transmission by the teacher and he's told to get, get out of here because I'll all be angry that I gave it to you and you, you better just run for your life and get out of here. And then the monks all, all heard about it and the head monk was furious, you know, um, that the transmission was given to this une uneducated peasant boy rather than to him who was this very well-educated ex-soldier who was the head monk. And so he runs after him with all of his might to get it. Come back here, you robe-stealing bowl thief, you know, is kind of what he's thinking about. He's running and running with such intensity. And when he catches up with Huey Neng, um, Huey Neng says, amongst other things, think neither good or evil. What is the true nature of the head monk right now? Mm -hmm. Again, think neither good or evil concepts. Mm -hmm. What is your true nature right now? All of these koans, these are just two examples, but they're all challenges to get us to cut through the, the, the self-centred emotions and the concepts that we cling to in our life that block us from seeing the suchness of life just as it is. Uh -huh. The empty suchness of life where there's no good or bad, no right or wrong, no life or death, no nirvana, no samsara, just us ordinary folk living our lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what it brings you into. And where it takes courage too in Zen practice is taking up koans as one example of it or even in meditation, um, we get stuck. You can get stuck on a koan or you can feel a sense of a impasse, not going anywhere in your practice. And it's not just me saying this, it's, it's generations and generations, centuries of Zen teachers saying this, I'm just saying it on their behalf. But when you reach the dead end, that's when you're practising. That's, that's when you are starting to really practise. When there's an impasse and you think there's nowhere to go, 
and there's that sense of despair, like being in the desert and it's dry and arid and um, I can't go forward, I can't go back. That's where you're going to cook, right at that spot there. So it's important to have the courage and the, and the encouragement of teachers and a sangha is that when you, when you reach that, that stuckness, that dead point where you think nothing's happening and um, my, my practice is pointless, that's, that's where you really start to cook and that's where we encourage you to stay. We call it the virtue of stuckness. And it's through being, it's about surrendering to that stuckness is where, is where transformation can occur. So, um, as you practice then through your life, acknowledge the fear, get to understand the fear and get to acknowledge the courage that it takes to, to go forward into this practice. Fear takes on many different forms. It's not necessarily jittery and panicky. Sometimes it comes out as rigidity. Sometimes it comes out just as anger. You know, it just flips into anger so quickly that we don't recognise the fear. You know, it can, it can come out of submissiveness. It can come out as being anti-authoritarian, you know, oppositional. It comes out in many, many different forms but it's at the core of our experience as human beings. And, as the Heart Sutra tells us, we do this practice over and over again. Maybe it won't go away altogether, but it seems to be the experience of everyone who commits to practice is that it reduces over time and it stops running our life.